Gotta love the folks at Steel. They help you get the job done right. S-T-I-H-L, they've been helping me for years, whether it's in the backyard with a trimmer, or sometimes when you go camping, I have a handsaw that I can bring. They have battery-operated, they have gas-operated, they have electric power tools of every variety, and they also have 9,000-plus dealers around the country. They're fantastic. Do as I've done. Go with Steel Products, S-T-I-H-L, and you'll find them at SteelDealers.com. That's SteelDealers.com. Boyer's Coffee is wonderful. I hope you start your day with Boyer's Coffee. They're locally operated, and they have been since 1965. They have outstanding coffee, and they also right now have some tremendous deals. Go to BoyersCoffee.com to see the latest on all of their wonderful products. Your favorite coffees will be there. Or you can just go down to your uh, local supermarket and find your Boyer's products there as well. It's BoyersCoffee.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, the college football playoff. In a quick phrase, they got their ass kicked up and down the field. Drew weighs in on the Eagles tanking. You play to win the game. For the players in that locker room, they don't care about draft picks. And part two with Tom Green in the early days of the Avalanche. And Patrick wasn't playing as great as Pocky. It wasn't like Montreal got rid of him because he was mad. They were concerned that he might be done. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave a comment. It helps other people find the show. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Well, we welcome everybody to podcast number 78. Uh, at some point in time, I guess I'll stop keeping count, but uh, 78 and rolling forward. Happy, happy new year. I hope uh, the new year brings not only a lot of prosperity, but good health, number one. And at some point in time, we move back to a degree of normalcy. That is, uh, I think, everybody's uh, hope for 2021. But hopefully you had a, a good and safe holiday. And uh, now we're in the midst of all the uh, heavy lifting in football, college football. We know it's going to be Ohio State and Alabama as we tape this on a Wednesday in the national championship game. Uh, the playoffs in the NFL will commence. We'll get to uh, that in a little bit. We'll also get to the Eagles debacle last week against the Washington Redskins in a moment. But uh, I'm welcoming my middle son. He's been on with me uh, before. He's uh, a student at Webster University, sports com and business double major there. And he's a baseball player. And uh, he had nothing going today. So I said, you're going to jump on with me. Zach, you got a few days left before you have to go back to school. You ready? Yeah, a total punishment to be on the podcast. Exactly. That's uh, that's what I'm doing. But it's always good to have you on. So let's start with uh, college football. First of all, um, the games in the semifinal, first we saw Alabama dismantle Notre Dame. We'll begin there. For me, that game was not a surprise. We all know that uh, you know Notre Dame has been very good, but they're not in the same class as Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. And that game was punctuated for me by that uh, great run by Najee Harris when he went Skeets-Nehemiah. My guess is my reference to Skeets-Nehemiah leaves you lost. Am I right? <laughs> 100%. How about Edwin Moses when he went Edwin Moses? Does that help you? No, not at all. Edwin Moses was one of the great uh, quarter-mile hurdlers of all time. And Skeets-Nehemiah was one of the great 60-meter hurdlers of all time and Skeets Nehemiah actually played in the NFL after because he was such a great track athlete and was a wide receiver with the 49ers for a minute or two but my reference is that Najee Harris literally hurdled a man on his way to that 50 some odd yard run pretty impressive yeah that was unbelievable just the pure athleticism of guy that heavy that strong to be able to jump over a, a defender like that and just the thought to even do that move and, and, and try that is is unbelievable and it shows the talent that is bred in Alabama football. Yeah, and the, and the game was never in doubt. And I know a lot of folks following the Golden Domers were hoping, hey, this is going to be the year. But Alabama is simply better. Notre Dame has great players. Alabama lines up great players three and four deep year after year. Yeah, you can argue that Alabama's B team, if they played all their, their backups, would be one of the best teams in the country. And they're just on a whole nother level than, than really anyone else right now. Yeah, no, no argument there. And then probably the more anticipated of the two semifinal games was Ohio State and Clemson. Now, Ohio State 
going into the game, you know they're going to have revenge on their mind because of what happened a year ago when Clemson took them out. What I did not understand, and, and you've been an athlete now for a long time, I'm a has-been athlete, but I understand this, that you better be up for a national semifinal game. There, there's no reason that you're not at an emotional peak and every guy in that locker room for Ohio State and every guy in the locker room for Clemson is raring to go. You don't need any great Newt Rockney speech. However, Dabo Sweeney added fuel to the fire in my mind when he ranked Ohio State 11th and said they didn't play enough games and probably don't even deserve, I think he intimated that, to be in the Final Four. What was your take on that? Just the history of Ohio State, you know that they're going to be a good team, especially at the level that Dabo Sweeney coaches at. He understands who's good and who's not. And like we've talked about, it's Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama. He knows that they're one of the top three teams in the nation. I don't really understand why he would go and say that. It doesn't make much sense to me. You're really going to say these these smaller teams, including a, a very impressive Cincinnati team from, from smaller conferences, isn't as good as the Ohio State University, who's been in the college foot they're a staple in the college football playoffs. It's just it doesn't make sense to me. No, it didn't. And he certainly um, didn't conjure up uh, an image of Lou Holtz, another person I'm sure you've heard of, great football coach. But Lou Holtz would take, if me and you and nine of your buddies got together, Lou Holtz would heap such praise on us leading up to playing Notre Dame, for instance, when he was the head coach at Notre Dame, you think, oh my goodness, this is the, the second coming of you know one of the great college football teams of all time. He, he went and did it the other way. And so Dabo Sweeney did not conjure up his best Lou Holtz, which you should do. He should have just heaped praise on Ohio State. Not that Ohio State would come out flat, but you did not need to add fuel to the fire. And, and Dabo Sweeney clearly did that. Not only for Ohio State, but if I'm a Clemson football player and I hear my head coach talking about, oh, they shouldn't be in the position they're at. The Ohio State shouldn't be playing against us. They're the 11th team in the country. Well, then I take a, a little bit of a step off the gas and go, this is our game to to win. And we're not going to lose because they're the 11th team in the country and we're the second team in the country. So it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, in, in a quick phrase, they got their ass kicked up and down the field. I mean, from the from the opening snap of the game. And Dabo Sweeney, in the aftermath, and his evaluation of the game, was right on the money. He, they got whipped, and he said as much, uh, to his credit, if you will. Uh, Ohio State's Justin Fields, I had seen him play in the past. He was a, a Heisman finalist a year earlier, obviously a transfer from Georgia. He had... In six games, five good games, and, and the one game I saw him, I don't know, was it the Indiana game? Maybe? Indiana and Northwest, Indiana and Northwestern. He str- not struggled, but didn't play up to par with with what people expect him to play with. Right, certainly with a guy that that's being mentioned as a first round pick and maybe a first half of the first round pick. The way he played against Clemson was otherworldly, and you couple that with the hit he took. And the fact that whether it's his ribs or whatever, and he had to take a, an injection right there during the game, a pain relief uh, injection, he was remarkably good, remarkably accurate, 22 of 28. He threw for six touchdowns. This is against Clemson Tigers now. This isn't against Purdue. This isn't against some non-conference opponent that's getting a paycheck to play Ohio State. This was against Clemson. And he was the best quarterback on the field, not taking anything away from Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence will still go number one overall. But he stole the show. Yeah, exactly. And you look forward to the draft. Um, before, a lot of people had talked about Zach Wilson jumping ahead of him as the number two quarterback prospect. And in one game, he completely stole back that position. And if you're the New York Jets drafting at number two with, with Adam Gase going out and you're, you're kind of in a rebuilding stage, you're salivating over the fact that, especially the way that Justin Fields plays and the way that the NFL is now set up to play with Lamar Jackson and, and guys like that, really, and Kyler Murray more active quarterbacks. We're done with the days of Eli Manning and Peyton Manning sitting in the pocket. Justin Fields looks like an NFL dream right now, especially if you can play like that. And the determination and the heart he showed after taking that hit was remarkable. Then you tally that on with these passes weren't easy passes. They were, he was throwing long balls and putting them right on the money, right where only his receivers could catch them. It, it truly was a remarkable display. And all credit goes to Justin Fields. That was 
one of the best quarterback games in college football I've ever watched. I, I would agree, and I didn't I didn't expect it because the previous two games that you mentioned, I thought he was just okay. In, in fact, you know, a time subpar. And I know a quarterback's not going to play at an elite level every time, but in the biggest game that that kid's played thus far, he was remarkably good. And even after he got hit, and you're wondering, is he going to be able to stay in the game? And he was grimacing after his throws. That was a special performance. And Ohio State and Alabama. And it looks like those clearly are the two best teams. We know going in, we knew we knew back in August who are the best teams in college football. You can line them up any way you want, but it was going to be Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. And now it's Ohio State and Alabama. And the fact that Alabama's played a full slate of games as opposed to just seven that that uh, Ohio State's played, I think you could probably throw that out the window right now. Assuming, and it's a big assumption, everyone is healthy, and I mean COVID healthy as well. Who do you like in the national championship game? This is going to be an unbelievable game. Just starting with Alabama, they have three of the top five Heisman finishers at their skill positions. You can't, <laughs> that's just unbelievable, the, the, the talent that's bred there. And like you said, even if they have some injuries, the guys they have behind them is unbelievable. You look at some of the, the wide receiving core they've had in the past, Jerry Judy and Calvin Ridley and Devontae Smith, they're all playing together. And especially start with Devontae Smith. That guy has had one of the best wide receiver seasons in college football in a long, long time. And it all started out his freshman year. He caught the game-winning touchdown in the national championship from Tua Title of Iola. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> I'm glad you did it, not me. That was fine. That was good. <laughs> but they're they're just unbelievable. Alabama over the last decade has had several championship teams, and this looks like a team that might be their best team in the last decade. They have so many weapons. They, their offense is just electric, and the only way I see Ohio State winning this game is in a shootout. We saw Florida gave them a run for their money with Kyle Trask in a shootout, and now they have another shot. Um, and I, th- I think Justin Fields being as hot as he is and the way they performed in the, the semifinal, I think this game is going to run up the score, and it's going to be a shootout. And I think Ohio State has a chance. And their defense played well against Clemson. I, I want to roll with the hot team in Ohio State. You know, it's funny. I thought you, with your whole lead up, I thought you were going to take Alabama. The only other time, by the way, that three players on the same team finished in the in the top five in the Heisman voting was back when uh, the four horsemen of, of, of West Point were running around, Doc Blanchard and that whole crew. I remember you watching them right in the 30s. Um, you have to go that far back. Uh, so this is only the second time that that's ever occurred. My gut tells me it's hard to, to knock off Alabama. I don't think the one area I don't think they're as dominant is defensively. We've seen them have some outlandish defenses uh, over the last bunch of years. Talent wise, they may be similar. Will they all come together in, in the national championship game? We'll see. But I, but I actually was going to kind of take the hot team and the team that you know, rolled over Clemson, and I was going to take uh, Ohio State as well. We'll see how that plays out. Hey, one one other note real quick about the Heisman Trophy. Devontae Smith becomes the first wide receiver in 29 years, only the fourth ever, uh, to win the Heisman. And I, I was really happy about that. I understand that 90-plus percent of the time it's going to go to a quarterback because they have the ball in their hands more than 90% of the time. They have it in their hands virtually every snap. And so you can put together a, a far more substantive resume. But I thought this kid deserved it. He caught over 100 passes, over 1,600 yards. He had 20 touchdowns. He had a punt return touchdown as one of them. Uh, he rushed for a touchdown. Uh, he had a, He had a remarkable year, as did Mac Jones, as did Trask at Florida, as obviously did Trevor Lawrence again in his third year. In, in Clemson, South Carolina. So uh, I, I'm glad they went with that kid. I, I think it was the right choice, and it was it was a nice change-up um, from, okay, who's going to be the Heisman winner? It's going to be the best quarterback uh, this year in college football. And for this, for this one year, I'll probably go back to a quarterback next year, but I'm glad Smith won it. Yeah, Devontae Smith is incredible. You just watch the game, and he's on a different level than anyone else on the field. He's just so much quicker than anyone. He, the routes he runs are incredible. He's always open. And you pile that on to the fact that he doesn't drop the football. And that's so important in the league, uh, in, in any football league. But in the NFL, he doesn't drop the football. He had two drops all year. He's got great hands. He's always open. 
I think he's going to have a, an excellent professional career. Well, it certainly looks that way. His old buddy, Jerry Judy, congrats to Jerry Judy, bounced back for the Broncos and had a really good final game of the season in the loss to uh, the Raiders. Uh, of course, he had five drops. You talk about two drops a whole season. Jerry Judy had five drops uh, the previous week. But I'm, I was I was really happy, and I think any Bronco fan had to be happy to see Jerry Judy bounce back. All right, we've kind of shifted gears. I mentioned uh, the Broncos. Let's go to the NFL. Now, I will openly admit, um, people who maybe have followed the show or followed me over the years, uh, I am a proud uh, transplanted New Yorker who, who will always be a Coloradan also. But I grew up in three generations of rooting for the New York football giants, and I continue to root for the New York football giants unabashedly. Do the giants deserve to be in the playoffs? Hell no. They won six games this year. I think they're getting better under Joe Judge, for those who care about the New York giants. Uh, they had a gutty win over Dallas, who's not very good either, uh, to put themselves in a position, if they got a victory from Philadelphia last week over Washington, to kind of back into the playoffs in a, in a, in a bad division. We all understand the NFC East is bad. I want to say that up front, so what I follow up with is not mistaken for, oh, you're just a Giant fan and that's why you're so upset because Philadelphia did what they did. I would say this regardless of whether I'm a Giant fan. And I will reiterate, the Giants don't belong in the playoffs. No team at 6-10 and 10 belongs in the playoffs. But what Doug Peterson did, in my mind, when he pulled Jalen Hurts out of the game in a three-point game in the second half and played a young man who'd been with the Eagles basically as a practice squad player for four years, inactive most weeks. He'd been inactive all season long. And said, oh, I need to take a look at him. This is not replacing some veteran quarterback. This is replacing a guy you drafted second. And you've now benched Carson Wentz, your Super Bowl winning quarterback. And, and Jalen Hurts has now played three football games. You need him to get a volume of snaps, a volume of snaps in close games, as was the game with Washington the other night, to see what you have and help build his confidence and build his skill set in the NFL. And to come out and, and to pull him out of the game and then come out after and say, no, we were trying to win the game is absolute BS. And it is not just about the Eagles. It's about the integrity of the NFL. They messed with the integrity of the NFL because the NFL moved that game to prime time. They told America, they told the football fans around the, around the country said, this is the most important game this week. That's why we're moving it to Sunday night with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and the gang on NBC. It's must-see NFL action. And then you had that display. Not good for the NFL shield. And my question is, should the NFL do something about that? They haven't as of you and I taping this on a Wednesday. It's now been 72 hours. I think they should completely get fined. You talk about Deflategate, and I, I, you've made this point in conversations before with myself, that they had a little less air pressure in the ball so Tom Brady could get a little bit of a better grip. They lost draft picks, got fined millions of dollars. The, the best quarterback of all time, maybe the best football player of all time, Tom Brady, got suspended for four games. And all they did in an absolute blowout over the Colts was have a little bit of a deflated ball. It didn't make a difference in the game, not one bit. This absolutely in a game that had playoff implications, whether it was for your team or not, was a disgrace to all of football. You're talking about th the first point I'd like to make is that literally these guys on the Eagles, they're putting their lives on the line to play an NFL football game against these strong men. All it takes is one hit and your life is completely changed. We saw that with Ryan Shazier and several other players who, who have had lifeline. Alex Smith, who's the starting quarterback for the Redskins, almost died of an infection from his injury on the field. They're putting their lives at risk and you're not trying to win the game. That's unbelievable. And it sets a reputation for the Eagles. If I'm in free agency, that is the last place I want to be. I do not want to be in Philadelphia. And they're a proud team. They won the Super Bowl just a couple years ago. And now you're doing this. It just doesn't make sense to me. It, it didn't play well in the locker room either. After there were some players that, that came out and said as much in the aftermath um, and, and, you know, a lot of people will keep it close to the vest. And, you know, some fans will say, well, I get it. Why shouldn't they tank? They went from the potential ninth pick if they won to the sixth pick. That's moving up three slots in the first round. Well, guess what? 
when you are a coach, when you're a general manager, when you're a position coach, it is all about we are playing to win the game. Think think of Herm Edwards as one of my all-time favorite football guys, even though he tormented the the Giants many years ago on the Pasarczyk fumble and ran it into the end zone when the Giants should have been running out the clock. Uh, he, he had a great television career. He's an outstanding coach now at, at Arizona State. What's his famous quote? You play to win the game. The Jets, who won two games a couple of weeks ago, they won for the first time. Those players celebrated, not quite like they won the Super Bowl, but they were elated. Because you know as an athlete how much time and energy you put in. And you're always constantly pushed by coaches to play when you're hurt, play when you're uncomfortable, do everything for the man next to you, right? And yet you come out and say, yes, we have the best chance to win by playing a young man who, who hasn't thrown a pass in two years, and you're trying to build something with Jalen Hurts and the integrity of not not only the game, but the other guys. Should, should they have just said, let's not even try to tackle somebody because I'm going to risk injury and we're, and we're kind of throwing up the white flag anyhow? It it was reprehensible. And the league, I thought your analogy was, was spot on. When the league came down on Deflategate on the Patriots, it took a first away, first round pick, a fourth round pick, fined him a million dollars, and took a quarter of the season away from the face of the NFL, quite frankly, and Tom Brady, because they they took some air out of the football. Was it wrong to deserve some punishment? Obviously. But it's not it's not even in the same breath in my mind, because you've now both teams were trying their ass off to win that game when New England played Indianapolis. That was not the case last Sunday. And that's why that's why you kind of like European soccer and the relegation system. And obviously you can't have a relegation system with the NFL. It would never work. But those teams that are bottom of the league, they have to play hard or else they'll get delegated, they'll get delegated to the, a different league. So they have to play hard. And the Eagles just did not. And it doesn't make any logical sense. There's not one single argument that you can make that makes logical sense. You spend one of your first picks on Jalen Hurts. He is your future starting quarterback. This other guy, he's been in your organization for three years as a practice guy. You've gotten a million looks at this guy. Now Jalen Hurts comes in and his first three games is excellent. He does a great job. He doesn't have a great start to the week 17 game, but he still had two rushing touchdowns and he's your guy. Now you're in a three-point game with playoff implications, even though they're not for your team. There was playoff implications, and you're not going to play him? It doesn't make sense. Don't you want your future starting quarterback, as it seems that Wentz is kind of going out the door? Don't you want your future starting quarterback, especially when he's young and has three games of experience, to experience a high-pressure Sunday night football game in a three-point game with playoff implications? You want him to be battling out there. And now you just sit him on the bench? It makes absolutely zero sense. Yeah, there, there's two other instances. Obviously, fourth down and, and goal at the four-yard line uh, is not a place, analytics aside, where you're going to typically go for it when it's a three-point game. You're going to get even, kick the, kick the chip shot field goal, and play it even from that point. But what was also lost is a little earlier in the quarter, they had an opportunity to, to attempt about a 53- or 54-yard field goal, which in this day and age is a very makeable kick to tie up the game. Well, they, I don't know if it was intentional. It was, it was somehow Al Michaels and, and Chris Collinsworth were, were, were on another topic at that point in time, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle. They took a delay game penalty and punted instead of trying a long field goal, and they have a plenty capable kicker that could have potentially tied up the football game at that point. That was kind of glossed over also. It, it was it was difficult to watch, and I'll reiterate again, for the players in that locker room, they don't care about draft picks. Their, their shelf life in the NFL is very small. They are lifting weights and busting their ass and putting their best foot forward to try to win a game, even if it means that, yes, you're not a Super Bowl contender, even if it means we're going to go out and, and be 6-10 and 10 as opposed to 5-11, and 11, it's still important to those people that are getting after it every day. And what Doug Peterson did, what the Philadelphia Eagles did, uh, needs to be addressed so we as fans can believe what we're watching week in and week out in the future. The One of the hardest parts for me was watching one of the faces of the Philadelphia Eagles, Zach Ertz. He won you a Super Bowl. 
and he's been remarkable for the Eagles for a long time. I think eight, nine years. I, I, I couldn't be exact, but he's just crying on the field until one in the morning after the game because he knows he's not going to be an Eagle anymore. And his final game, his send out, you didn't even try to win. It's, it's such a disgrace for a guy who's done so much for your for your organization, and then you're just like, hey, man, your last game, we're not even going to try and win. People aren't making as big of a deal of this as I think they should be. People are writing it off. The the playoff games need to play next week. People are going to kind of write it off. It'll get brought up a few months from now when the, the NFL draft is on and they're picking sixth instead of ninth. But it's kind of going to disappear unless there's some punishment. I think this sets a tone for the NFL. You can either punish them and stop this from happening again, or other teams will start doing the same exact thing. They'll take the draft pick and they won't even try um, because they're going to go unpunished. And it doesn't make sense to me. Now, I, I do understand this much, and I'll, and I'll leave I'll, I'll leave this topic with this. It, it is a slippery slope because you can say, well, he's not fully healthy and we, we want him going into the offseason getting healthy and that's why we didn't play our quarterback or that's why we didn't play our star wide receiver that sort of thing so that that opens up a a kind of a pandora's box but it was a bad look for the nfl it was a horrible look for the philadelphia eagles and as the point you made earlier going forward you know if you're a free agent do you want to go to philadelphia right now we'll see what kind of ramifications yeah you can't even use the excuse that you don't want jalen hurts to get hurt because he's literally just fresh out of college. He's young. And I understand. Obviously, there's the NFL. He has the possibility of getting hurt. But you still played him the first three quarters. Deshaun Watson, the face of the te- uh, the Texans, played his heart out in the last game. A meaningless game. It didn't have playoff implications. He played a meaningless game. and pl- Actually, it did. They played, the, they played the Titans tough. But he played a game that for the Texans wasn't very meaningful. And he played the entire game. Yeah. And he's a star quarterback in this league. The only pass I'll give, like Pittsburgh obviously didn't play Roethlisberger, they're going to the postseason. And so they don't want to risk Ben Roethlisberger getting hurt in the final game, even though the game was of profound importance to Cleveland. They needed to win to get in. But that, to me, is a different scenario. All right, we got to move on in the interest of time. We're going to get to our Deal Home Loans uh, interview of the week. It's part two of my conversation with a guy I kiddingly said on social media that he's been in this market for about 70 years, but he, he still looks like he's 35, and that is uh, my old buddy Tom Green. After our interview, stick around on the backside. We're going to make some uh, playoff predictions in the NFL. I'm going to tell you about a couple of coaches in college basketball that are doing marvelously well that I think you'll uh, want to hear about. But first, my old buddy Tom Green and our Ideal Home Loans interview of the week, part two. Do you have uh, several sports moments or memories that that kind of stand out above the rest of the crowd? Well, just to take you back to those, I remember the first time I got sent over to to you know interview the Nuggets. It was a you know an off day. They had practiced, and I showed up. The only guy in the locker room was David Thompson. So I interviewed David. Uh, David, uh, it was in his last years, uh, last year as a Nugget, and he had been so good for five years, and now he just couldn't play anymore. He had off the court trouble and he certainly his body was breaking down and he was a ghost of the guy he was um so he was you know i don't remember the interview particularly what i remember was having seen david thompson play for five years standing next to him and go my goodness i think i'm taller than he is and i can't believe where he's been in relation to the rim because it was and, and Fairbanks, I was going to do a live shot with Chuck Fairbanks in 82 uh, at spring football. And uh, it was so windy up in Boulder, our microwave dish didn't work. And, I, you know, I just chatted with him for a minute or two. And then, and then we couldn't do the shot, and he left. And then two months later, he actually left. He went to the USFL, and uh, suddenly they had to go find this nobody named Bill McCartney to come coach their football team after passing on a couple other guys. And... You know, you think of those things. Uh, actually, you know what? I would say the best night of that first year was when the Rockies played, and it was a nationally televised game on ESPN. And a lot of my old friends who I just left were on the production crew. But what I remember was on the call was Don Cherry, 
And that yeah. night after the game, the ESPN guys, Don Cherry and I went over to Zhang's, drank beer, and I just sat there and listened to Don Cherry talk for two hours, and I, I just thought it was a, a marvelous place to be. I was the fly on the wall. It was great. Yeah. There's, there's so many great characters, and, and I'm going to reference a, a guy that unfortunately is no longer with us who was a good friend uh, uh, of mine and of yours, and, and you reminded me of a quick story I'll share with Chuck Fairbanks, and that's Irv Brown. Because Irv, back before his broadcasting days and his great radio days and his refereeing days, you know, Irv was you know the head baseball coach at Colorado. And back then, you know, it was almost like high school coaches where in the fall he, he was a position coach. I think he had the defensive ends or, or, or somebody, you know, maybe it was the tight ends uh, for Chuck Fairbanks. And prior to that, he was, he was on the staff and Chuck Fairbanks came in and Irv's getting ready to, you know, say hello to him. And Chuck's in Irv's office and he's kind of banging on the wall a little bit, Tom, checking where the studs are. And and as Irv says, hey, coach, how you doing? He said, I'll be needing this, referencing the wall. And like three days later, Irv's office had been um, knocked down and was now part of a much larger head coach's office, i.e. Chuck Fairbanks. Oh, man. Yeah, well, Irv, you know, obviously when when baseball left CU, uh, you know, that, that broke his heart. But I... Uh, Years later, would always introduce him as the man who made CU baseball what it is today. How, how much of a kick? Because you you did this so well, and you've done so much of it uh, through the years, the rubber chicken circuit, if you will. Uh, but emceeing various events and charitable events, and and, and uh, you know, gosh knows how many different things you've emceed, and it, it allows your personality uh, to come out. Is that? Is that still an enjoyable uh, part of your career? You know, I did so many of them. Um, and then when I went to the morning shift, when I had to wake up at 2.30 every day, I, I very rarely did them. I did them, you know, for a few people um, that I'd done them in years past for. So suddenly, you know, I was at Channel 2 for more than 15 years, so it became something I just didn't do much of anymore. No, but I always got a kick out of it. I, You know, you get... There's such a difference between the nervous energy looking at a camera in a primarily empty studio and looking at 1,500 people and, you know, 1,500 people are busy talking and, you know, do you you bring them to order or do you just go and figure they'll come around when they come around? So completely different animal. But uh, some of those nights... Because they get to be fun. If you, if you have the right crowd and you have the right people to, uh, you know, a good show for them, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. What athletes through the years have you interviewed that you found particularly interesting or intriguing? And not to throw a blanket over every athlete, but uh, I'll quote or paraphrase Tony Kornheiser, and I and I. I really enjoy PTI, uh, pardon the interruption. If I don't see it on television, I listen to the podcast. And, of course, Wilbon and Kornheiser have, you know, phenomenal chemistry and they're, you know, tremendously bright. And, and, and especially in Kornheiser's case, you know, he loves to, you know, drop a line here and there. But he says, I don't like having athletes on because most, most athletes don't have anything to say. And um, fair or unfair, but over the years, who comes to mind that has wandered through our town where you said that that's a really compelling figure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I I think it's so much harder for stars because they are always, you know, their bullhorn is that much bigger. So when they say something, you know, it it sticks to them and uh, they, they either start out more cautious or just are more cautious. I always like guys who, who, uh, I think enjoyed listening to the question and, and pondering an answer. And I, you know, the first guy that comes to mind for me with that, and there are many, but uh, I always thought Trevor Price uh, was a guy who was genuinely interested in the conversation um, and uh, wouldn't mind, you know, trading with you about something, but not just because I'm an athlete and you're a broadcaster. It's because he, you know, either had an agreement or a disagreement with something you said. Um you know, it's funny, though, because I I, it, I got a great perspective one time on 
athletes in interviews. When uh, we went to Chicago during the Avs' first uh, playoff run, they were playing the Blackhawks, and they had that infamous night, Game 3, where Craig Willannon turned over the puck in overtime, and Sergei Krivokrasov beats Patrick Waugh. And now the Avs are in trouble. They're down 2-1 in the series. Game 4 is in Chicago. And what becomes a Stanley Cup run was really on edge. And because I was doing the radio show with Doug, I didn't need to go get post-game sound. But I went down into the locker room afterwards, and I stood about 20 feet back, and I watched Patrick Waugh's post-game interview. And because I wasn't up next to him holding a microphone, because I was 20 feet back, I realized what was happening, that he was answering the reporter's questions, but he wasn't talking to them. Because around him, he was in the center of the locker room. Around him was the entire team on the walls uh, getting, you know, changed out. And he was talking to them. And I just had a chance from that distance, from taking a step back to see the forest to the trees and realize what happened. And, of course, the Avs behind Waugh came back and went on to win that Stanley Cup. And it also gave me a perspective on sometimes those interviews, you know, or pro forma, but sometimes they're also meant for a different audience. Was that the one with, with Roenick where he said, tell Jeremy I can't uh, hear him, I got my Stanley Cup uh, rings in my ears? Well, that was later in the series, I think, um, because of, uh, I think that was after game four, which the Avs won in Chicago and before game five, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, that series had such great intensity that uh, – you know, you think of the Avs that year winning the Cup, having to go through a really good Chicago team that was playing great, and then Detroit, and then, of course, it, you know, the kind of anticlimactic final with the Panthers, who were, you know, a goalie, but that was about it. You know, Van Biesburg was great, but that that was about it. Do you know, and in, in, in you saying earlier, you've been in our town almost 40 years, and, and I've been, you in Colorado, 35-plus years, and I will tell you, and, and there have been some great you know, moments, certainly with the Rockies and the 07 World Series, and even as recently as 17 and 18 were fun with the, with the playoff runs and, and, and so on. And, and we've seen the Broncos at the top of the mountain, um, and, and, and the Nuggets have been close. And I, you know, I know they're off to a slow start this year, but they have, they have wonderful talent and they have some interesting personalities. But for me, Tom, and I know how much you love hockey and Ranger guy growing up, for me, that period, you know, when, when the Avs arrived from Quebec, and, and most people, A, weren't hockey fans, and B, certainly didn't realize the talent that they had gotten, and then the late Pierre Lacroix and what he was quickly able to add on with, you know, with Patrick Waugh, etc. Um, that period and having the opportunity to kind of cover them, be the sideline guy and the pre- and post-game host on our coverage, that will always be maybe the most special period for me in covering a team and and just getting you know wrapped up in who the avalanche were because year in and year out i mean they were the new england patriots for a you know a, a decent period of time yeah it was spectacular as a hockey fan and like i said when i got here rocky hockey was here and they were just a terrible team i mean they they could hardly score any goals and they left and became the devils almost immediately after i got here but this team came and i had seen them uh because of i was a rangers fan i'd seen them i think it was the year before losing the playoffs to a a rangers team that they might have been better than and it always came down to goaltending but you'd see you know the brilliance of of Sackick and Forsberg and what would they add and how would they get better? And all of a sudden, you know, the Patrick Waugh story is so interesting. I think many people look back on it and think, oh, my goodness, they got the Hall of Fame goalie, you know, in a trade because he had a bad night. And Patrick wasn't playing as great as hockey. He was not – it wasn't like Montreal got rid of him because he was mad. He was – He was. they were concerned that he might be done. And when he got here, he certainly became reinvigorated. He certainly had a point to prove. And – you know, anyone who saw the last dance, you saw how Michael Jordan liked to feed on anything you gave him. He turned into motivation. Well, Patrick Waugh had every bit of that. And uh, his motivation, once traded, I think, became clear. And he knew he had a team in front of him. And he knew he had, a, you know, a partner in, in Pierre who who he knew to, uh, to make it happen. Uh, it was a lightning bolt because, uh, like you said, I don't think many people – 
knew much about the team or the sport. And all of a sudden, you go from September to June, and in June, people couldn't turn around without wanting to know more about the hockey team and the players and the Stanley Cup and everything. It was it was an amazing run. And, and as we all know, there, there's no better team sport than playoff hockey at, at its highest level, which which is the NHL. And now, you know the other thing that happened is now every kid plays hockey because instead of a couple of sheets around town, there was a sheet on every corner. Um, and I'll tell you a quick funny story. Speaking of how athletes sometimes, you know, most athletes now are very very guarded. And I was in the locker room after a game, and I, the Avs had lost. And, you know, it was the middle of the season, and, and maybe Forsberg was on a you know two game point uh, you know pointless streak, which for him was you yeah. know you, you just never saw it. And you know, I, I'd say you know we chat a little bit every night, and he and he looks at me, and it's 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 like the guy was exposed for a moment. And he said, um, he goes he goes what are you what are you seeing? With, with me, and I'm like, Tom, I want to look over both my shoulders. Going, is he talking to me? What the hell? I'm going to give Peter Forsberg advice on what I'm seeing. It was, it was funny, but it was like, you know, it, it was that moment where um, even the greatest of the great can feel, uh, you know, a lack of confidence. It's funny because I think of, of professional at the professional level. Hockey is the, of the four major pro sports, hockey is the one where effort can still beat talent. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, the payrolls of teams and talent amassed and talent is going to win out in basketball and baseball and football almost all the time. But in hockey, if you don't want to do the work on the wall, if you don't want to stand in front of the net, if you don't want to, you know, put your face down and win a face off, um, you can get beat by anybody. And, uh, you know, it's so funny because I remember guys, there was a guy named Joel Otto who didn't play here, but he was a great face-off guy, and someone asked him once about it. He said, you know, how do you win so many face-offs? He goes, because I can't imagine what it would feel like if I lost it. And, you know, the Avs had a, had a guy like that in Troy Murray that first year. And Troy was, you know, past his prime a little bit, but – Boy, you wanted a late draw in a game, you'd see Troy Murray on the ice in your own end. You know, he'd, yeah. he'd go win the draw for you. And that's the, you know, hockey still has, has the dirt in it that you need to, to win. All right, we'll have more with Tom Green in a moment. But uh, first, this from Ideal Home Loans. I tell you every week what a wonderful company Ideal Home Loans is. My buddy Brent Ivinson has been in business 20 years. They're sensational. I've used them uh, a couple of different times. They will save you money. Give them a call, 303-867-7000, 303-867-7000. New mortgage, refinancing consolidating debt they're the folks to turn to they have an a plus rating with the better business bureau ideal home loans 303-867-7000 give them a shout and now more with my old friend tom green tom i was telling my kids and my middle son who's a college baseball player zach is is an enormous avalanche fan i mean enormous like for christmas uh, if we get him anything avalanche he's the happiest kid in the world right so um i was telling him recently about you know he knows about the watch trade and, and and so on even though he wasn't born i said but one of the things that always seems to get left out of that trade with the canadians and we were talking about it a little bit because of you know pierre lacroix in my mind been the greatest general manager of this town you know, had, had, has ever seen. And with his recent uh, passing, we were chatting about the fact that they also got the captain of the Canadians, Mike Keane, who in, in a sport where they always talk about character guys in the room, there was no bigger character guy than Mike Keane. And one of the uh, supreme reasons they won that first cup wasn't just they got a great goaltender in Wah. It's that they got Mike Keane. Yeah, and, you know, you talk about that guy, you know, who's, uh, when you think about a non-French captain of the Canadians, that tells you a lot about what he meant in their room. You put him in the Avs room, and, you know, it's not like he arrives with ego. He arrives with just what is it going to take. But, you know, grit, 
sand, all those things you hear about hockey players. Mike Keane was a guy who'd win a draw. He'd get on the wall. He would stand in front and make you move him. And, and those are the guys. You can't have enough of those guys. Sure, you need the 40-goal guy, and, and you need a guy who can rush the puck end-to-end or put a pass on tape from 150 feet away, but you need to have a room full of, of those guys, too. Yeah, the, he he was he was. Well, there were some wonderful, you know, characters. Sandus Oslin speaking of guys who could rush the puck from, uh, you know, from end to end and go two hundred feet with the puck. Um, he he was a marvelous talent. Um, real quick, because you've mentioned uh, a guy that we both adore, um, Doug Moe. Ever have you ever been around? And you worked with him on a daily basis, as you were talking about on, on your radio show. You ever been around a guy that literally? Um, could flip a switch like Doug. I mean, he was an absolute lunatic on the sideline. His tie lasted, um, you know, maybe 45 seconds. The ugly jacket. Now, this is before he went to Philadelphia when they spruced him all up and he bought fancy suits. But, um, you know, the jacket would go flying. He Sailors would go, boy, this guy has bad language. And yet... The players adored him, Hanslick, you know, T.R. Dunn. He'd go in the locker room after a tough loss. He'd have his Coors Light in front of him. The chopper handed him, and he was a different guy after, you know, he was able to cool off for five, seven minutes. Yeah, well, that's the thing because, you know, you we all remember Doug, the funny guy, but that guy was so competitive, and he uh, – he just couldn't go hard enough, and he wanted to win so bad. And so when people ever think of, you know, Pat Riley was a serious guy and Doug Moe and, you know, Frank Layden and these guys were just kidding around, Doug wasn't kidding around. You know, Doug Doug had done the math, and he thought he could he could run you out of the gym, and it almost worked. I mean, if they'd stayed healthy back in 85, you know, they, they had the Lakers – as great as the Lakers were, the Hall of Fame Lakers, uh, they could have beat them. One of my favorite Doug Moe deals was when, remember when he said, well, you guys aren't playing any defense, so I want you literally to stand on the baseline and not play any defense. Do you remember that one? Well, yeah, he got mad. I think it was the game in Portland, and, and uh, he was so mad. And then he sent him back out, and then somebody guarded somebody, and he got furious, called timeout, and yelled at him. When I say don't play defense, I mean don't play defense. He got suspended. He got the league suspended him, and I think that was one of the one of the games I think that our our good friend Bill Ficky got to coach. So many great moments, and then so then you're doing the radio show with Doug, and and I would I would venture to say um, he Doug loved baseball even more than basketball, and he put together a, a thirty and over team. Um, that, that that was probably one of the great collections of athletes of all time. Wouldn't you concur? Well, uh, yeah, if you take you and me off the team. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, we had that was so much fun, and Doug really had to convince me to do it because, you know, I'm, I'd never really played any high levels of baseball and stuff. You had, and, and Doug, you know, despite at the time, you know, probably being about 60, uh, you could see, especially when he grabbed a bat, his hands were great, and he, he could hit. He just couldn't move much. But we had so much fun doing that. And when we were doing the radio show, all he would do is look forward to the next game. He just wanted to play. It, it was it was so much fun. And Doug, um, and Tom's not embellishing, Doug, I saw, we saw Doug hit balls like one hop the wall, and he would get a single out of it because he literally he couldn't run. But Doug could legitimately hit. And that was his passion. I always find that funny when, when guys are known for you know a sport they played so well and maybe coached and so on. And yet Doug's number one love, well now it's fantasy sports, but but was yeah. baseball, man. And he, and we, who was on that team? We had Michael Young, who was a great two sports star at UCLA, and obviously had a really nice NFL career. Todd Lichty, um, yes. uh, remember Todd was ambidextrous, literally could. Th- Throw just as well left-handed as right-handed. It was a uh, it was a fun group. Gary, Gary Romero was with us. On yeah, the team. Gar- Gary was a terrific player. He's in the Metro State Hall of Fame. We had, we had a nice team. We had a lot of fun. I remember I remember seeing the other side of Doug that we'd always covered once because I caught quite a bit. 
and I forget who was on the on the hill. It may have been our our friend Murphy. Murph may have been on the hill, and Murph didn't have it that day. And I kept looking over at Doug, like, "You got to pull this. You got to take this guy. We got to make a pitching change." And Doug finally got ticked off, and he goes, "Just catch the effing ball!" And yelling at me, I was like, "I felt I felt like hands like." <laughs> Well, it's, that's, you know, like a, a croix de guerre. That's a high honor to have Doug cuss you out. Um, you know, it's funny. People would talk about his language. And, you know, I think we our language uh, nowadays is, is much more naturally coarse. But back in the day, you know, if you dropped an F-bomb in public, it was noted. And Doug would just scream on the bench. And there were so many times when people – <laughs> He would start lighting up his team on the bench, and then he would look up, and there'd be like some ten-year-old in row four with his big eyes looking at him, like, "Whoa!" Right. And Doug said, "That's not my fault. That those seats should be R-rated." Yeah. No, I, I remember that, and there would always be, you know, the invariable letter to the editor that you know Doug's language is inappropriate and that sort of thing. But you know, it's kind of like welcome to professional sports, and we look at it differently. Uh, you know, certainly in this day and age, where people are taken behind the curtain uh, a, a little bit more, a lot more than uh, than they were back in the day. Well, some um, of that's the some of that's the arena too. I mean, don't you like McNichols was a small arena. And, and, you know, you were, wherever you were, you were in the game. I mean, you look at the size of Pepsi Center to McNichols. I, I missed the old arenas. Now, I didn't have to ever use the ladies' restroom, which I believe there were two of in McNichols Arena and, and all the reasons you build a, a new one. But, uh, I, I missed those old, more barn-like arenas as opposed to the fancy, uh, you know, four-star luxury arenas we, we visit now. Yeah, there, there, there was a charm, certainly. Uh, to McNichols Arena um, that like a lot of the old arenas. So I will say this: um, I don't know how how much you went back on the island to where the you know to what was it Uniondale? What, what was it? Yeah. I mean, Nassau Coliseum. Nassau Coliseum, right? In Uniondale, um, that place that place probably you know should have been taken out a long time ago, right? Pretty small arena, but I will tell you that as a high schooler, I uh, I got to see Dr. J play there, so that makes it legendary. I saw Springsteen play there. I've seen, I, I saw a lot of things happen there, but they're they're building their new uh, facility out by Belmont Park, I guess. Yeah, well, it's lo- it's long, long <laughs> overdue. You get back to New York much, Tom? Well, I used to. Um, you know, my uh, sister still lives out in eastern Long Island. My uh, brother lives up in, in the Boston area. So uh, I still get back to the East Coast uh, when we're not having a pandemic, uh, usually a couple, three times a year to visit, see the city, see the family. Um, uh, I, I always love going back. I've, I've never, ever had any regrets about living here. This has been a magical place for me, of course. But um, uh, I, I reflect fondly on the what I call the advantage of having been born and raised in New York City. It was a, it was a great time and a great place at the time. Yeah, I think that's that is a great summation of of um, you know kind of how I feel as well. I, I uh, I'm a Coloradan, but as the Billy Joel song goes, and I had it played at, at my wedding. Um, there are times I'm in a New York state of mind, and I got to get the New York fix, and and then I'm thrilled to be back uh you know looking at the mountains and living where we yeah. do hey tom it's an absolute pleasure i really appreciate you you hanging out for a little bit and uh continued success i know you got another 40 years in you um so uh listen i'll, I'll see you out on the street always good to talk to you drew thanks so much for having me on well, Tom Green's had a great career and I'm proud to call him uh, a friend and a colleague. Did you happen to catch, folks, the CSU comeback last week against San Diego State in basketball? I'm watching the game and I and I wanted to turn it on and I got in a few minutes late 
and it was 28 to 5 San Diego State. Remember last year they were very close to being a one seed if the tournament took place. They certainly would have been a two seed. They had a kind of a late loss and didn't win the Mountain West tournament after being the Mountain West regular season champs. But they were one of the six or seven best teams in college basketball last year during the regular season. CSU goes there. They're getting blown out in the first eight, ten minutes. They fall behind by 26. They end up going on a 19-0 run. They closed within seven in the first at the end of the first half, and they come back. and John Tanjay hits a three very, very late and gets fouled. Makes the free throw. They get a stop. A couple free throws at the end. They end up winning 70-67 in what was the greatest comeback, not only in Colorado State basketball history. It was the greatest comeback in Mountain West Conference history. They ended up losing the rematch. Uh, two days later, they fell behind by 30 in that game, came back and made it a game, ended up losing, uh, I believe, 78 uh, to 65. The reason I'm making that point is that uh, Nico Medved is a wonderful guy, and he's a heck of a coach. He was such a wonderful hire uh, by by Colorado State. And CSU has a legitimate chance without a senior on their roster behind David Roddy and Isaiah Stevens and a really nice young team to make the NCAA tournament. We'll see how it plays out. But they could get in, and we could have two teams in the state because Tad Boyle, once again, has done a terrific job in recruiting and coaching up his Buffaloes. I've had them a few times already. Uh, I'll have them a a few more times on the Pac-12 network uh, coming up against Cal and Stanford and Utah, and they're good. And they have a great player in McKinley Wright who's a four-year starter at point guard, uh, who keeps getting better and better and embodies all of the things you want as an, as an athlete, especially as a point guard. He's a leader. He's tough. He's talented. He's fearless. Uh, he is a tremendous college basketball uh, player. So we have two of the top coaches uh, going in college basketball, really. And Tad Boyle has been doing it now for 11 years in Boulder. And a guy that may, you may not know as much about, Nico Medved, two really good guys who are doing it the right way, and it'd be wonderful to see uh, two teams from our state in the NCAA tournament. I think it's—I uh, I know it's still early January, but I think it's uh, a real possibility that that could occur. All right, before we get on out of here, the NFL playoffs get going this week. I'm not going to break down every game. There's enough radio talk shows and other podcasts that do that, but uh, I'm going to have Zach come back on board with me for a moment, and I will tell you that. I am going to take Green Bay out of the NFC. Shocker. Aaron Rodgers, it should be a no-brainer MVP for, what is that, the third time. And the AFC is fascinating to me because there are a number of good teams in the AFC. I mean, you have the returning Super Bowl champs, Patrick Mahomes and, and Kansas City, and you have Josh Allen and a Buffalo team that's probably the hottest team, along with Green Bay, in the NFL. I'm going to take Buffalo in the AFC, I'm going to take Green Bay in the NFC, and I'm going to take Green Bay in a very entertaining Super Bowl to be the champs in February. Yeah, I like Buffalo too. You can't ever bet against Patrick Mahomes, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. I, I really like Buffalo coming out of the AFC. They're, like you said, the AFC is really competitive, and I think there's more good teams in the AFC than there is in the NFC. The NFC, the, the favorite of, is, of course, Green Bay, and the Saints are looking really good. Uh, you know, the, Se- uh, the Seattle Seahawks could make a run at it. But the team that I like to come out of the NFC is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, the reason I like them is they have just have so many weapons. Uh, they've won their last four games pretty convincingly convincingly scored 47 and 44 in the last two games respectively they beat the Packers 38 to 10 earlier this year and other than a a 38 to whatever three up smacking that the Saints gave them in week nine they've been pretty impressive they're only two losses since week nine uh three points to the Rams three points to the Chiefs they can play with anyone and if they get hot at the right time which they've put up huge numbers in the last few games I think they can make it out of the NFC who wins then? So you got Tampa. I have Green Bay. You have Tampa Buffalo. I have Green Bay Buffalo. I have Green Bay winning it. Is, is it Tampa for you, or is it going to be Buffalo in the Super Bowl? I, I'm rolling with Buffalo. I think they're finally going to end this drought, and Josh Allen is a superstar in the making. Uh, definitely the best quarterback pick out of his draft, and he's played unbelievable this year. If Aaron Rodgers hadn't put up together such an unbelievable year, he'd be in the conversation for MVP. I think Buffalo takes it this year. 
Well, you can get on that smartphone of yours at some point, and you can look back before you were born. Buffalo made it to four straight Super Bowls with Jim Kelly, and they lost all four. Oh, I know. Yeah. You're, see, that's a great thing about four, it. Four falls in Buffalo. Four falls in Buffalo. I've seen the 30 for 30. Uh, there you go. That's great. Hey, uh, you're going back to school. Study hard, and good luck this baseball season. I appreciate it. I love you, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. That'll do it for this edition of our podcast. We'll join you again next week. We'll have a new guest. The Avalanche start. The NHL gets going uh, in a week or so. We look forward to that. We'll be discussing that as well. Thanks again. Stay well. Stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to the Drew Goodman Podcast. Subscribe at iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. And leave a comment that helps other people find the show.